Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions, social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, woohoo! Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Street, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's podcast is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Who knew that using a different coloured pen could make a will invalid or that removing some staples means the document is no longer legally recognised? Well, Morris Blackburn's expert lawyers know all the important tips and make creating a will easy. Simply complete the form uh, online on their website and they'll arrange a time to discuss your needs and prepare your will and store it at no extra cost. Search Morris Blackburn Wills today to get started on your affordable lawyer-written will. Hello and welcome to season four of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday uh, that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on today's episode, we are speaking to uh, cricket broadcaster and journalist and a a former comrade, uh, Labor Party member and former um, uh, advisor to both uh, the uh, uh, Kevin Rudd when he was Prime Minister and Wayne Swan when he was Treasurer, Adam Collins. Um, Adam's on the show today to talk about a campaign that uh, Dunstreet, uh, myself, uh, partnered with a group of uh, Hawthorne supporters uh, around the country that wanted to bring some change to the way that their football club was run, which then became known as Hawks for Change. And we're going to talk about that campaign and how it all came about and then the outcomes and the lessons that we learned from that campaign. So we thought that might be interesting for you guys whilst you got your feet up watching some cricket or some sport and just chilling out over the summer break. I hope you are having a great summer break and we hope you're enjoying the uh, the spoils of the new year. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser and Spotify. And Spotify is adding a five-star review system to their app Um, which is going to happen now, apparently at the end of 2021. Uh, That was yesterday. Uh, So be sure to give us five stars uh, when you're done listening to today's episode, um, if that feature is available right now. Who knows? Anyway, uh, for updates, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. All right, we are taping this one on the 1st of January 2022. Happy uh, New Year's to everyone out there and uh, happy birthday to my mum. Joining us on today's show is uh, a London-based Australian cricket journalist and broadcaster and he's out here for the summer covering the Ashes series and we're lucky enough to pin him down uh, between tests to have him on the show. He's also a comrade, uh, a former advisor to um, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and Treasurer Wayne Swan and most recently was the key driver behind the uh, grassroots community-led reform campaign into the Hawthorne Football Club called Hawks. For change, and he's on the show today to discuss this unique and historic campaign uh, that came to a head in uh, December last year. Adam Collins, welcome to Socially Democratic. G'day, Stephen. Happy New Year. Lovely to be on your podcast. I know we tried to do this a couple of times during one of the lockdowns, and it didn't didn't quite come off. But I'm glad that I'm able to come on and talk about Hawks for Change specifically. Absolutely. We've um, I think we've had a couple of ideas that we what we wanted to talk about, but um, in the end, this seems to be the best thing to talk about. Yes, it's such a historic uh, campaign. Uh, that was run over the better part of, I guess, the second half of last year. I do want to talk about Hawks of Change in a moment, but cricket, because you're obviously out here for the cricket. You're a busy boy. Yeah. Um, you've been covering the Ashes series. Um, what kind of demands has that placed on you in terms of who, what, who have you been reporting for whilst uh, you've been out here in Australia? Yeah, um, well, lots of people. I sort of run my own business these days is probably the best way of explaining it. So um, be it broadcasting or writing or podcasting or everything in between really commentating. So my dance card during a usual test playing day at the moment, I'm uh, doing ball by ball commentary for SEN for radio in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, I'm working for BT Sport Television back to the UK. So um, I'm part of their, their post play team. We have a 45 minute program that we make that goes back to England and I'm sort of the token Australian voice on that, which is pretty fun. Uh, I'm working for CrickBuzz, which is the biggest cricket website uh, in the world these days, which is a, a daily spot that I do with Mike Hussey, the former Australian batsman. Uh, I make my 
podcast at Stumps as well with my colleague Jeff Lemon. We've been doing that for about six years now, depending on how you want to measure it. The final word cricket podcast, which is what it's called, is I guess it's you could say it's the most downloaded cricket podcast in well, maybe not the most, but near enough to the most downloaded cricket podcast in the world on, on its given day. Um, it might have some competition with our friends at the Great Cricketer, but you know, fairly well up there. And that's also um, running on the Guardians platforms during this series. And uh, in and around that, I'm, I'm writing columns for Wisdom Cricket Monthly, which is a, a magazine back in the UK as well. So, yeah, it's a it's a pretty busy existence, especially with my um, baby daughter with me here as well. So, uh, balancing the time is probably the, the biggest challenge, but wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, coming out to Australia for this year's series, did you expect uh, the series to be wrapped up by the third test? Uh, well, no, not initially. Uh, all of my pre-series predictions will look rather optimistic when it comes to how competitive it might have been. I, I sort of arrived at a conclusion that both teams were quite fragile, uh, both batting lineups really were quite fragile, and that um, in turn it would create quite a bit of volatility. And we might sort of see it a bit of a scattergun series where um, neither team really uh, demanded uh, favouritism and, and thus didn't translate that through to winning at Brisbane and Adelaide and so on. But England just just I mean everything that could have gone wrong for them be it environmentally and, and I guess some of their structural problems are, are coming home to roost as well all at the same time they haven't been able to implement their their plan a which was to blast Australia out with their fast bowlers because frankly their fast bowlers are all injured with the exception of Mark Woods so Joffre Archer and Ollie Stone are back in England so they've, they've failed to to compete on that level they've had to rely on their seasoned veterans who are fabulous cricketers and fabulous bowlers but um, there, there's a significant contrast in, in airspeed there I suppose which has given the Australian batsmen a chance to play themselves in and, and the rest is history really on that front and their top seven are just not up to it uh, apart from Joe Root and Ben Stokes when in form they have a very fragile uh, top seven which has been uh, taken advantage of expertly by Pat Cummins and his deep bank of seam bowlers the fact that Australia have used six fast bowlers in three test matches and you know Scott Boland being the sixth of those and he's player of the match at the MCG it's a staggering story um, in its in its own right really um, but yeah, um, that that is that's something that Australia were criticised for earlier this year when they lost to India. That they had a great uh, a great group of quicks, but they they were overly dependent on them and weren't willing to test their bench depth. Uh, and so far in the series, with Hazelwood uh, getting injured at Brisbane and Cummins being close contacted out of the second Test match, they were forced to reach into their bag of tricks and, and they pulled out a couple of beauties in um, Jai Richardson and, and Scott Boland. So, uh, yeah, and, and there's a broader structural conversation that I, I won't bore your listeners with about um, the inadequacies of English domestic cricket. And I suppose that there might be some interest in the socioeconomics of English cricket, actually, which I think is a big driver towards why they uh, they struggle to compete unless it's very favourable conditions. But uh, yeah, that, that's a, that's something they'll have to consider after the series. The here and now, it's 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 ugly. Everything's gone wrong, and they're well on the way to another five nil series defeat, as it was in nineteen twenty twenty one, a hundred and one years ago. Albeit they were on war rations at that point, so they probably had a reasonable excuse. Uh, Two thousand and six oh seven, when they were playing against one of the the greatest Australian teams ever assembled. 13-14 when a great team that they had were, were on the downward curve and and now this team it's probably uh, the worst of the lot I was going to ask you about predictions there but it sounds like you're sort of edging towards it there might be there it may be a chance of a, of a, of a whitewash in the next two uh, tests I'd, I'd be surprised if it wasn't um, the added complication which was always there is is that this bubble fatigue they're, they're experiencing uh, and, and you know constant COVID testing and we get a bit of an insight to that in our jobs because we're, I mean, I would have done, I don't know, a, a, a 10 or a dozen, P, I, I thought it was might've been eight or 10. I've done so many PCR tests since arriving in Australia. I've never had a symptom. Uh, you, know, you could argue that I'm clogging up the health system, but it's required of us to do this all the time. And it's the same for the players. And the England team have been pretty good global citizens through the pandemic. They've travelled all around the world. They've played lots of teams at home. Uh, they've met their bilateral obligations almost completely, with the exception of one tour. Uh, whereas Australia have had more of an isolationist approach. They've stayed at home. They've only played uh, test cricket at home since the pandemic. They've not played away from home since September 2019. Uh, so 
So, um, you know, with the England team, they are knackered, uh, they are broken, uh, and they aren't good enough. So all those factors combined, you can chuck in there the fact that they had to do 14 days quarantine at the start of this series, which in hindsight was fairly scandalous. The, the reason they had to do 14 days um, after Don Perrottet and Daniel Andrews, and in the ACT as well, uh, with, with, uh, with Chief Minister Barr, um, they, they had to... Um, they still had to go to Queensland and do their two weeks, even though had they entered those three aforementioned jurisdictions, they would have been straight in. And where this was bizarre to me was that uh, agility is the key word that Australian cricket administrators have bandied about in the last two years since COVID's taken over. Um, but why, where was the agility to afford not only the England team, but the Australian team to re-enter the country after the World Cup and just crack on with it? And for England, that would have given them, you know, two more weeks of practice in Australian conditions rather than getting out for what became one and a half practice matches that were marred by rain, being thrown into the first test at Brisbane. They were on a hiding to nothing. Uh, but then I suppose Australia were able to punch the bruise pretty hard. We could turn this into a, uh, a cricket politics podcast, but um, we do want to talk about politics of another <laughs> sporting variety and that is um, your uh, beloved Hawthorne Football Club uh, and before we jump right in I, I I don't know whether I if I um, need to declare my interests in this it's some sort of John Law's you know golden microphone uh, cash for comment kind of thing but um, <laughs> I um, in my capacity uh, as uh, the, the, the the I guess the community organizer and director for Dunn Street um, we we're approached by yourself and a group of others to develop a community organizing strategy uh, to help organise and mobilise a community support for uh, the campaign that you wanted to run yeah. leading up to the AGM and the elections for the Hawthorne Football Club. Um, and no doubt we'll speak more about the, I guess, the community component of the campaign in a moment. But mm. before we dive into sort of the nuts and bolts of the campaign, for our overseas listeners or even our, just our non-Australian listeners, how would you describe the Hawthorne Football Club? And I was thinking about it in the terms of if they were an EPL team, who would there be their equivalent? Or if they were like a, a, an, <laughs> an American sports team, how do, you, how do you describe Hawthorne to an outsider? Yeah, for the longest time, you would have said Liverpool. Uh, very successful in the 80s and trailed away thereafter. But Hawthorne's, I suppose you would call it a renaissance from the um, middle of the, the 2000s onwards. And look, we've fallen away in, in recent seasons, but winning four premierships between um, 2008 and 2015, including a, a hat-trick between 13 and 15, uh, left really no doubt that Hawthorne is the most successful club of the modern era. Um, you could go as far back as the most successful club since like colour television or, or since our first flag in 1961 or the Second World War. No matter how you measure it, Hawthorne have punched above uh, our weight, uh, relatively speaking. However, um, there was an existential crisis uh, back in 1996 when we came within, well, we came within 2% uh, in, in crude terms of merging with Melbourne. Uh, there was an incentive put on the table from the AFL for uh, for four clubs to merge at the end of 1996. And, of course, Fitzroy did merge with the Brisbane Bears to become the Brisbane Lions. Well, the Melbourne Hawks were all but a done deal until the Hawthorne membership uh, rose up and pushed back hard against the, the administration then. Uh, and we won that scrap 52-48. Uh, at the AGM in 1996, so a quarter of a century before, in no small part due to the organising and community organising that we're going to talk about today, uh, led by um, Don Scott, former Premiership captain, and a number of other former Hawthorne greats like Dermot Burton, who said, no, no, this doesn't need to be this way. The members should have a voice. The members should be able to vote via proxy, which was a big issue at the time. Uh, and we, we snuck over the line and the club went from having 12,000 members in 1996, which is barely a heartbeat, to 27,000 in 1997. And these days it's got a seven in front of it. It's had an eight in front of it, I think, in one year as well. So you get some sense of the, the scale of, of the build that Hawthorne have enjoyed over the last 25 years to the point where now very strong off the field or seen to be very wealthy and strong off the field, even if in the last couple of seasons they've been experiencing somewhat of a rebuild after that glory period. Um, the club has been blessed with arguably, you know, three golden periods, the 70s, 80s, and just most recently the, the period that you spoke about just before 2008, 2015. Why then was there a need for some sort of change within the club? Because I, I, speaking to some of my mates when they asked me, Steve, what are you up to at the moment? I said, oh, I'm just doing a bit of work for this Hawks for Change group. And they've seen, they've seen that again. And there's like, oh, boo fucking who? Like, you know, Hawthorne, what are you complaining about? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> there's fo football fans out there that haven't seen a premiership in a long, long time. Um, and uh, yet, you know, his Hawthorne supporters are agitating for change because they're not happy with the way their club has been run. What, what, what was what was the genesis there? Yeah, it's a great question. And look, if it were just an on-field thing, if it were just on-field alone, I, I don't think there would have been the momentum for 
change. I think really it boils down to the fact that um, there were some off-field decisions made around 2016 to 2018. And in the middle of all of that, Jeff Kennett returned to the club. Now, now it, it should be noted off the top that Jeff Kennett presided over a very successful period for Hawthorne when he was president uh, for two terms the first time around. So that would have been from 2005 until 2011. We already mentioned the 2008 Premiership, which was Hawthorne's first since 1991. So Kennett, who had supported the merger in 1996, he wanted Hawthorne to, to, to merge with Melbourne when he was Premier of the state. Uh, but as, as president, uh, he had been in charge at a time when Hawthorne was seen to have done well. There were some big bumps along the way, as was documented in uh, a number of books after the fact. Uh, the late Michael Gordon, uh, great man, uh, wrote a book about the 2013 Premiership, which revealed uh, that, that Kennett tried to get Alistair Clarkson dropped to the reserves as senior coach back in 2010, for example. So there was some quirky Kennett stuff going on as far back as that. But I think that when he you know, exited stage left, took his bow and, and, and replaced himself uh, before the 2012 season, I'm pretty sure it was, there was a sense of, you know, thanks for your service um, you know you're a, a former president of a club that's been successful sort of well played even if people didn't like his politics or the way he went about it there was a there was a, a broad acknowledgement that this had served Hawthorne well this era had, had served Hawthorne well um, but upon returning in 2017 it didn't quite have the same energy around it um, now it's, it's it's difficult to talk about the internals of how the board functions I'm not a director of the club none of us are but Increasingly, it felt like um, we were being spoken for exclusively by the president, uh, and those uh, and those reflections were getting more and more skittish, to, to put it mildly. Uh, his social media contributions on a whole range of topics were uh, borderline unhinged, uh, and it was embarrassing. And the relationships with key stakeholders was clearly deteriorating. Whether that's the AFL, uh, whether that's state governments (plural), because of course Hawthorne have a presence in in Tasmania as well. Uh, it, it just there was this sense that Hawthorne were becoming a bit of a laughing stock off the field and it needed to be arrested. And uh, the, the, the attitude we took, and we'll go into this in more depth, I'm sure, was we're not looking to storm the Bastille here. We're not looking to, uh, to, to blow the joint up. We are looking to uh, see where there might be an opportunity for there to be some change within the existing structure, i.e. within the existing board. And that kernel of a thought uh, turned into this organising strategy through Hawks for Change with people from a, such a wide cross-section across the club, from, you know, from people, I guess, like me, who, who are political actors, um, to on one side of politics, to political actors on the other side of politics, to, to premiership players, to just long-term committed members who've never been involved in a campaign before. There was this overarching feeling that there was something not quite right at the heart of Hawthorne and it needed to be addressed and and it didn't take long to convince people of that of that starting of that starting proposition talk to us about the origin story or the genesis that uh the steps that happened that aren't related to uh Jeff Kennett or the or or, or the way yeah. that the board was being run but in the end was I guess it was the foundations or the or the the, um, the seeds were being planted that eventually would lead to Hawks for Change yeah, I mean, and, and, and I have to say, this is thoroughly unrelated. If you know, if you're a journalist listening to this, I don't want you to think um, what I'm about to say now is why we did what we did because it's not, and it would be disingenuous to present it that way. Um, but it, it is, um, it is the case that a number of people got brought together uh, last year to buy the Batmobile. Now, that is purely because we're. I mean, I suppose it reflects the fact that we're just, you know, nuffies really. I mean, we by the Batmobile again. If you're listening from abroad or from interstate and don't have a, a sense of what what I'm referring to, at the 1991 Grand Final, which Hawthorne won over West Coast, halftime entertainment was Robert De Castella and Angry Anderson um, driving out in a um, in an 11 metre Batmobile. Uh, with the AFL's logo on the side of it, and Angry Anderson, who was the lead singer of Rose Tattoo, um, singing "Bound for Glory" in, in quite a quite a, an expressive way with a leather jacket on, um, with all of these Olympians who were preparing to go to Barcelona and other greats of sport in Australia, sitting uh, mouth agape watching this performance, and it's gone down as the most iconic piece of halftime entertainment in Australian football history. And because Hawthorne won the flag, and I wrote a piece for The Guardian about this, you know, people are like, well, yeah, it's a thing that happened at halftime, but why do you guys care that much? It's not as though it's a Hawthorne thing. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, maybe not, but it's a piece of history aligned to our club forever. And, you know, I was a kid of a certain age. I would have been seven uh, for the 91 grand final. And it's, for such a long time, that was the last moment of great success 
I mentioned that we nearly went under in 96 and there were some pretty rough times in, in the late 90s and early 2000s as well when the club was really going poorly off the field financially uh, and, and it wasn't entirely clear we'd ever be a powerhouse again. Um, but there was this moment and it was 91 and it was the Batmobile. And many years earlier, I don't know, maybe 2007 or thereabouts, a number of friends that I will remain as close with um, then as I will be to the day I die, we, 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 were, we, we became pals through Hawk Headquarters, which was a forum. It's now a private members chat room type thing. But, you know, it had its time. I'm sure we all remember before social media that if you're a total nut about something, you'd probably find a forum. Well, Hawk Headquarters was that for us. And we were at a pretty formative age, I suppose. We are all teenagers in, in the early 2000s and all became great mates, including a number of people, uh, Stephen, who you're now friends with through... Uh, politics like Ben Foster and others and we all said look we are going to I said we are going to buy this thing in about 2007 when it bobbed up on eBay and we missed out and and for years after that I lamented the fact that we weren't organized enough to buy this bloody car and then last year what well, would have been uh, in 2000 and uh, 2020 uh, it, it came up on eBay again and I immediately put a bid uh, to be ahead in the in the count, as it were, it was only about a thousand bucks on the line or something. I've just got to get myself uh, front and center here, and I and I sort of announced this to Twitter that I was going to buy this car, and the Herald Sun and others picked up on it, and one thing led to another, and it was a bit of a yarn that there are these Hawthorne supporters who are going to try and buy this car, and we got outbid, and it went back and forth and back and forth, and then I um, through that process of being in the press. Uh, a person who I knew and remembered as a reporter but had never had anything to do with when I worked in politics, Mark Hawthorne, got in touch. And he's a tour de force uh, in so many ways. Uh, and he'd been the publisher of The Age and done a number of other things over a long and distinguished journalism career and by that stage was working in the corporate sector. And he got in touch and said, well, you've obviously got a friend, lot of friends that want to buy this car. I've got a number of friends that wouldn't mind getting involved as well. Why don't we sort of join forces? Reminds me of that scene in The Simpsons. Like, he was from West Germany, I was from East Germany. He had a big company. I had a big company. Now we have a very big company. Well, there was a bit of that going on. I had a fair bit of, um, you know, a fair number of people who were willing to chuck in a slither and he had even more than that. And, and lo and behold, we won the thing. I have this enduring memory of being on the balcony at Lords commentating the England domestic final last year, the county final last year. And the, the auction was scheduled to finish at 1pm, just when lunch was scheduled to be taken. And my co-commentator is like Mike Atherton, one of the most credentialed and esteemed voices on the game. And he kind of knew what was going on, but of course had no idea what the fuck I was really up to. Um, as the clock was counting down to zero, and as lunch is you know, coming about and I pretty much throw to the ad break and I'm celebrating in the commentary box and he's like, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. I'm like, oh, there, there is, there is, but this matters. Uh, and anyway, so we, we win the car and there's a lot of media attention and all the rest. And um, through that process of just talking to Mark and others, uh, friends I'd had for a long time and others, we, we kind of just started talking about where the club was at. And there was this sense that, yeah, I mean, this has all been very exciting, but it feels like there's something fundamentally awry at the moment at, at Waverley Park off the field. And that is where these conversations started, effectively a WhatsApp group. Um, a very relatable experience, I suppose, a bunch of disgruntled supporters talking on a WhatsApp group. And then as we got deeper and deeper into the year, and, and I suppose, yeah, the social media stuff from the present got looser and looser, uh, and the relationships were clearly deteriorating yet further. Um, we're like, well, let's just explore our options here and, and have a think about what might be possible uh, between now and the AGM. And, and that was the very, very start of Hawks for Change. We didn't even have a name at that point, um, but I sort of realised at that point that despite the various bits of political, political and campaign experience around that WhatsApp group, that we were not going to be able to do it without... Um, putting a professional uh, spin on things, and I suppose that's that's where that's where the team at Dun Street came in. Was there a, a critical moment in that journey last year, where or a catalyst where you guys could have said, "Enough is enough. We need to actually start to do something about this," as opposed to just be disgruntled fans on on a WhatsApp group or or, or, or a forum or a chat? It was probably boiling frog stuff. I, I don't think there was one moment. Um, there was some pretty, I mean, obviously there was some pretty late night rants on, on so again, it feels like it's quite reductive just talking about Twitter because obviously Twitter is a cesspit and none of us wish it existed and it would be better if it didn't exist. But it, I don't want to kind of use that as the only filter, but it felt like a decent finger on the pulse and other intel that was coming out from, from inside the club as well that, that just felt like, you know, that in the absence of change... Um, Bearing in mind, there's one other bit I failed to mention here. It was that when Jeff Kennett returned to the presidency, uh, he was 
pretty much drafted back into the presidency. There was um, a two-term limit that he brought in when he was in the job the first time around, and he was coming in for a third term. There was legal advice received. The club said that it was fine for him to come back on, on the advice they'd received. Uh, and it was in order to do one term, to basically get the show back on the road after some after a couple of rough moments there with uh, a chief executive that didn't quite go to plan and in turn a president that stepped down over that over that saga. So everybody kind of thought, well, um, he'll be back for three years and then that'll be that. But at the end of 2020, uh, citing the pandemic, uh, he, he was going around again. So I, I suppose when we got into 2021 and realised that... Um, you know, that in all probability things would remain as they were and would probably deteriorate um, between then and the end of uh, Kenneth's, what became his fourth term, uh, 2023. So that probably um, focused the mind a little bit as well, realising that it wasn't just about getting to the end of 2020, which is when we first started talking about it. Um, upon realising that it was going to be three further years on top of that, there was a sense that, look, let's, let, let, let's explore our options here. What was your strategic goal when you first sort of got that group together? Um, what did success look like for you guys? I think success looks like having, having a representative on the club board who shared the views that we were expressing and shared the concerns there. I think at the very start, it was like, can we do this? I mean, you know, all of us had been involved in so many elections through our other lives, former lives, whatever that when you see a democratic process, you, you know, you, you're kind of always a little bit interested. You look over the top and say, oh, how does that ballot work? How does that come to pass? And for me, that there was that level of curiosity. There, there hadn't been a proper ballot for the footy club for... Well, there nearly was in 2004 and it didn't quite happen. There had been, obviously, around the merger in 1996, but members getting the chance to express their democratic interest. And this became really quickly a massive focus of what we were doing. It was that members should be given the chance to have their say. It's a member-owned and driven club. It shouldn't be a case of a media release going out um, every 12 months at the time of the board election where members would be told who the next couple of directors would be or who was being renewed. That This competitive tension of having an election, which is usually a good thing, uh, wasn't there. And I, and I suppose that's a broader cultural problem with footy clubs in the AFL. Uh, you don't see a lot of board elections. And when you do, they tend to go hand in hand with scandal. It's like it can be, and Eddie Maguire said this a lot about Collingwood. He was proud of the fact that there'd never been a board election in his time as president. And I sort of saw things a different way. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that as a virtue. I saw that as a, I saw that as a handbrake on the sort of talent that you could get coming through the doors of a footy club outside of that fairly narrow channel that a lot of directors end up in in sports administration. And I've sort of seen that in cricket as well. So there was a, there was a view that, um, that, uh, that an election would be fundamentally a good thing or having competitive tension at the very least would be fundamentally a good thing. Uh, so, yeah, based on that, we, 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 we realised there was going to be um, two directors up for election uh, at the end of 2021, December 2021. It became clear um, via a statement that Kennett put out that one of those directors wouldn't be going around again. So there was effectively one vacancy and one director who was going around a second time. So, yeah, I, and, and by that point, we'd been working with Dunn Street and we had a fairly good idea of the story we wanted to tell. Um, but we had to make a decision, like, how are we going to proceed? Are we going to try and win both spots or one spot? In the end, we had two candidates uh, in the race, two exceptional candidates in the race, um, of whom they were both running their own race, by the way. I'm not saying they were the, the Hawks for Change candidates, strictly speaking. There was a, a degree of distinction between um, them running and us supporting them, but we very much endorsed two candidates who put their hands up and, and provided support to them on the way through. So... Um, at that stage, I think, Stephen, it was about can we get someone up? And it was not a lot more than that. It was kind of like wading into the unknown. And it, as you said in your answer just there, it, it's quite rare for AFL clubs to have um, board elections or have competitive democratic processes electing members of their board. Did you look at other um, outsider reform groups that were seeking to educate Take for change at other clubs. I'm thinking about Collingwood as an example, yeah. a most recent example. And what were the? Did you look at that and try to take some learnings from their experiences and, and enable you to sort of direct how you were going to play it for Hawks and Hawks of Change? Definitely, 2004 uh, wasn't well executed or run. 
um, you know, and this is no um, no disrespect to those who put their hands up then, but it was scrappy. Uh, I think heart in right place, but, um, you know, the club was reeling on the field in 2004. We came uh, second last and the coach was sacked mid-season. That was Peter Schwab. And there was a sense that the club had missed a, missed a trick um, from a pretty good era, which ran between 2000 and 2003, that we'd, that we'd really fallen off a cliff on the field. And that was the driver behind that, that push then. But they never brought the membership with them. Um, Back on, you know, Hawke headquarters forum days, we had a politics board on there to deal with this election. And I remember at the time, like, they weren't well organised. Um, you know, again, best intentions, but weren't well organised, didn't communicate their message well. And it looked far too reductive and almost personal, really, um, with the existing president uh, who was running the show then, Ian Dicker. And thus, they never really got off the ground. Then there was the Richmond um, brief, um, a, a brief board challenge at Richmond about five years ago, which was the focus on footy campaign. And again, it had a similar theme to what happened at Hawthorne in 2004, where it was, it was all about the on-field stuff, um, which is fine. Footy clubs exist to win games of footy. No concerns about members uh, wanting, to, uh, wanting to push hard on, on, on seeing their clubs do well. Uh, you know, each each footy season, but we knew it couldn't just be that. Um, the fact that though that there had been an element of football involved, uh, football. Uh, I was going to say scandal, and that's probably not the right uh, choice of word. But um, the the departure of Alistair Clarkson, um, which Kennett was instrumental in, and looked scrappy. It looked unhawthorne like, I suppose you could say. A lot of people use that adjective. Um, a coach who would go down, who will go down as the greatest of the modern era, um, being able to leave the club in such strange circumstances and what looked to be, for all money, as though a rift that, uh, that had uh, already been there with Kennett from a decade ago, which was still there and ultimately led towards Clarkson leaving in inglorious circumstances, which nobody wanted. I think people accepted there needed to be some sort of change, but Clarkson was, uh, until a few weeks before he departed, saying that he was fully committed to seeing out his contract and, and, and looking after the club in 2022. Well, suddenly that wasn't happening and, and it was a shambles. So there was that football side of things uh, that I think probably did. You asked about what tipped things over the edge. That was actually what probably did tip things over the edge. That had far more to do with uh, the rank and file of the Hawthorne membership saying, hang on, this smells a bit funny, than, say, the way that Hawthorne had treated Tasmania or the way that the Cavalier, you know, the Cavalier attitude that some at the club have had to do with pokey machines when there is definitely a move at a lot of clubs away from that stream of revenue, that, that sort of bullish idea that, well, stuff it, you know, it's legal, therefore we'll do whatever we want. Um, I'm not saying everyone holds that view, but in some quarters around the club that have been Expressed. So for all of that, it felt like it was the, um, the removal of Clarkson that, that tipped things over the top. So, yeah, there was a sense of looking back at 04 at Hawthorne, the focus on footy debacle at Richmond and what was going on at Collingwood and not wanting to go that way. We were determined to be constructive from the get-go at being positive, about not running a negative campaign, about not, frankly, making it too much about Jeff, even though, you know, it's impossible to avoid it being a conversation around Jeff to an extent. I think that most people who got involved with Hawks for Change realised that we were far more than a, than a protest campaign against the existing Premier, the, Premier? <laughs> that's a Freudian there, the existing President, the former Premier, and it was a lot more to do with wanting to see the club on a sustainable footing in a range of ways into the future. One of the things that struck me from uh, my involvement in the campaign was the constituency that the movement was built on and the diversity of those people from within the Hawthorne community. Can you talk to us a bit about that, about who you guys sought to engage to be a part of this family that was Hawks for Change? Yeah, I think by the time we knew what Hawks for Change was going to be, and Dunn Street was really important in this and just sharpening our focus, we knew that it couldn't just be, you know, a dozen people on a WhatsApp group. However sort of influential those people might have been or experienced they might have been, or well-resourced they might have been, um, it, it was never going to work on that alone. It needed to be uh, across existing structures that have been at the club for decades or for a generation or two. So, for example, the Thornbirds, which has been uh, women who've supported the Hawthorne Footy Club for a really long time. There was wonderful support that was drawn from the Thornbirds. Uh, through, uh, I mentioned, uh, Hawk Headquarters, that, that, that forum. You know, it might sound like a nerdy thing, a bunch of people talking about footy on the internet. Um, but I tell you what, there were a lot of people on there which in and of itself became a, a stakeholder in what we were doing 
in Hawks for Change. There were other groups like the Progressive Hawks who, you know, by virtue of the name, you can probably imagine the politics of that group. But nonetheless, a lot of people who wanted to see uh, the club change. And, and so it went. There were other groups who were all engaged in a fairly methodical manner. Remarkable how many people um, do their footy on Facebook these days. I, had, I kind of had no idea. Maybe I should have, but there are so many uh, gigantic Hawthorne Facebook groups that, that are out there and their dissatisfaction was being tapped into. It's like a focus group. You jump on Facebook comments uh, at, at when, when stuff's going on around the club, be it um, something on the field or maybe the Clarkson Kennett departure or the, the, the Clarkson departure and Kennett's involvement in it. it it's, a, it's a wonderful focus group beneath the line, if you like, on where people are at. And we were able to tap into that and get a sense that if we were organised, if we had a central uh, focus, if we had a clear message, if we had credible people talking, if it was community-led, which I think was really important in all of this, and we'll come to that, I'm sure, as well, that this had a decent chance of success because we weren't just sitting around, you know, WhatsApping each other, it very quickly became, uh, you know, a group of equals, but across a far wider, um, a far wider community inside the club than just a bunch of a handful of people that you know, bought a car the year before. You managed to secure the public support and endorsement from some um, great club legends. Um, how important was that in the campaign building recognition in the broader uh, Hawthorne community? I think it. I think it, you cannot underplay how important or overstate how important it was that the former greats of the club who've had not just roles as players, but have also done, have also been involved in the broader footy community. Like take someone of the of the ilk of Gary Ayres, yeah, five time Premiership player, yeah, won the Norm Smith Medal twice. You know, done, has done it all you can really do as a player. Um, credibility seeping, brown and gold credibility seeping out of his paws. However. He's also coached two other AFL clubs. You know, he's been involved at Port Melbourne for a, for a generation. He's been involved in the game since the late 70s. I mean, if someone like Gary Ayres is like, who loves the club, not political, you know, never been involved in anything like this before, he's saying, oh, this is not right. This, the direction it's going is not right. There needs to be change. People listen. People take notice of someone like that, as they do Peter Schwab, three-time premiership player and, and a former uh, former coach of the club, uh, someone who's been involved in the, in the tribunal and with the umpires and with you know so much in the media as well Schwabby of course was a journalist with the age and has been a broadcaster for a long stretch of time like he's seen a few things these guys have been around a long time and people of that stature putting their hand up and saying oh I don't know putting their head above the parapet really in political speak and saying you know I'll cop a few whacks for this but I don't mind uh, I thought that was just an amazing part of this and it was a great endorsement of what Hawks for Change was doing. I don't think they would have had a, a, anything to do with us if it didn't appear to them immediately that we had our act together. So they joined us on various Zoom calls and um, various other conversations that were being had privately and said, no, no, this, this feels like the, the right kind of change with the right kind of candidates at the right time. Uh, and that momentum started to build other former premiership players. I mean, Jamie Morrissey has done a power of work writing for The Age about, um, about where Hawthorne can improve in recent years. And that's done with love. I mean, someone like James Morrissey, and you've had a bit to do with Jamie now as well, uh, Stephen, he's a beautiful man. I mean, he's a truly beautiful man. And Jamie Morrissey doesn't jump in the opinion page of The Age and start, and start um, speaking the way that he's speaking unless it really matters. And he's thought about it and he's considered his options and he's evaluated that this is the best way of proceeding publicly. Uh, and I think that struck a chord early on, a couple of op-eds that, that he was writing. And then we, then we happen upon Andy Gowers, who, um, you know, he'd been on the board uh, both with, and, uh, with Jeff and at other times as well before Jeff returned to the club. And, you know, you get someone like Andy, who's been a premiership player in 91, been a director for the club before, and his entire philosophy was, I'll put my hand up because I think that lots of people should put their hand up to volunteer to help the club. But by no means do you th by no means should you think I'm some careerist who wants to get on the board. If the right thing for the club is for me to withdraw or not be a candidate or someone better comes along, I'll be the first person to step away. And he ended up living that. He lived his words. Uh, he again, it, it, an honourable man who just wants to give back to the club, uh, and and has done so splendidly uh, through this process. Uh, and, and you know, so another premiership player in him. 
Uh, and then eventually, well, not that he's a premiership player, but someone like Ian Silk, who was the, the cherry on top, really, when Ian decided that he wanted to nominate for the board, uh, had recently stepped down as the, as the chief executive of Aussie Super, who experienced extraordinary growth under his tutelage over the last, I think it was 18 or 19 years. His, his leadership was instrumental to so much of their success and so committed to the club. And he'd been involved in subcommittees before and all of that business acumen and you know, all of that, um, that personal credibility, uh, when he said, no, no, I, I want to step up, I think that was as influential as any of the premiership players. So it was a bit of a perfect storm by that point. And right at that point, uh, we were able to roll out the community organising plan and the two things, um, the two things aligned magnificently well. I've been meaning to ask this question, um, but we've always been so goddamn busy um, in the work that we've been doing. <laughs> we've never had a chance to. But it just did strike me during this campaign. I mean, here it is, uh, Adam Collins, who is an absolute passionate Hawthorne supporter all of his life, as you've you know made it quite clear, uh, is working on this important campaign to change the direction of the club he loves and working side by side some of the legends of the Hawthorne Football Club. Now, I'm not a Hawthorne fan and I'm, not a, I'm, I'm, I'm adjacent to uh, AFL in a, in a large way. Yep. Um, so for me, it was very professional, um, and I was just and, and Andy Gowers. I'd, I'd heard of him, but I didn't really know much about him. I obviously, know Gary Ease. Yeah. He's from my hometown of Warrigal, went to my school. Of course, yeah. Um, but for the rest of them, I you know sort of tangentially kind of knew these guys. You've lived and breathed these people. How did you not fanboy when you're working beside these people whilst the, the same time <laughs> trying try to keep a professional kind of attitude towards you doing? Because if someone asks me, <laughs> Stephen, I need you to go run a reform campaign in Celtic, and I need you to go and speak to Henrik Larson. <laughs> I would go hide for about a month to prepare myself to talk to the man himself, you know? Yeah, I, I do know. It's funny. I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Maybe it's a function of having worked in politics when you don't have time to idolise the people you work with or work for, even though know, you might hold them in like such high regard. You know, I mean, I suppose in my political existence before having worked with prime ministers and all the rest of it, I, I, maybe that maybe I'm a bit immune to that at this stage of my life. And other cricketers that I... Um, work with as a broadcaster and as a journalist like I suppose that there isn't quite as much as that but I mean if you popped on one of the old grand finals right now I would be I would be as emotionally invested in what they were doing now as I was before I knew them and before they were kind of colleagues in this in this campaign um, but I mean really when you realize that Hawks for Change you were just another bare bum in the shower I mean it really was so egalitarian I mean it was genuinely like as you know from our zoom calls no one carried the day I mean, everyone, and, and that was what made it so gratifying in many respects. It was that, yeah, sure, like I might have been chairing or, or whatever, and there were others who were doing a power of work and some were able to do more than others. But it really did have that sense that no one was doing it for themselves. Everyone was doing it for the greater good and thus it created a really good culture around the table or around the Zoom screen, as it were, whereas I was sort of getting up at five every morning in the UK where I live at the moment to jump on these calls. I never, I never regretted it when my alarm went off and I suppose it was the same for all of those guys who could be doing other things with their lives, having been you know, great footballers and the credibility in Melbourne that comes from that, but they'd also committed to being part of this. And, yeah, there was never any issue, I don't think, with people... Um, uh, speaking truth to power or, or something like that when it came to these guys who who had um, achieved great things as footballers. The campaign had a very strong uh, media focus um, and you'd expect that given the number of people that were involved in the Hawks of Change who come from a professional background in either media or communications. Mm. Um, you, you, yet you also, want, you also sought Dunn Street out to work with you guys in terms of developing a community engagement or organising strategy. Mm. Why did you want to do that? Because normally what happens is people tend to think they can win a campaign in the media alone. And that's how <laughs> I think that that would have been, certainly that would have been the, the, um, the, 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 the norm for a campaign such as this. But you guys didn't. You, you, you sort of thought outside the box. Why, why did you want to do that? I think that's just the experience of people who are around the table. I mentioned Ben before and myself and others who've worked on big campaigns knowing that world's best practice uh, – is well best practice i say world's best practice best practice in terms of organizing people in the community has been essential to uh winning state elections in recent years and and uh and other community elections around along the way why wouldn't we want to tap into that practice why would we want to do it alone why would we want to be sort of too smart by half um so on that basis 
knowing what you'd been able to do and what, what Dunn Street had been able to do uh, around the place over your brief but influential existence as a as a standalone consultancy, but obviously when you worked in organised politics, it was a no-brainer really that we needed to uh, we needed to outsource the organising bit to make sure that there was every T was crossed and every I was dotted. Um, there was no, um, there was never any sense that we had all the answers on that WhatsApp group or the WhatsApp groups that emerged over the journey. It was very much that we wanted to get the best possible outcome, and if that meant investing in resources, and that's what effectively it was by um, engaging Dunn Street, then it was a small price to pay to um, deliver on, by that stage, deliver on the promise of what we were talking about to so many people. We didn't want to fall short. Um, because we hadn't um, hadn't got the campaign right, so yeah, it was I guess a pragmatic decision, but uh, but governed by uh, governed by an understanding that we didn't know everything and, and that other people knew more than us, and, and leaning into that idea. I don't want to do the um, Alan Bond uh, moment um, at Newport, Rhode Island, where he lifts up the Australia Two to reveal. <laughs> the, the wing keel because I think that this this story and this journey has a couple more chapters still to be to be written so let's not give away all the trade secrets but I just wanted to get your reflections more broadly on the campaign itself what what, what were some of the things that uh, you, you look back on now and go shit I did I, I never thought we would have been able to do that or or that was that was super insightful or that then that's given me more thought to what we do next or what, what were some of your sort of I guess, I mean, we did this with our organisers, our Hawks for Change organisers every every Monday when we met at the end. We did a pluses, deltas and key takeaways. Yep. What, what were some of yours, do you think, from the campaign? Well, it's that really. It's that it's the organising group. So the way in which we were able to recruit a dozen people who were like kind of putting their lives on hold in a way just to throw everything at this. Uh, and again, I stress this point. People who had nothing to do with politics before nothing to do with organised campaigning before. They just thought, I have, the, I, you know, I have the time and, and the resources to commit to this. And, you know, from what was a germ of an idea a number of months before to watching these online rallies where hundreds and hundreds of people were showing up um, and all speaking the same language, you know, all committed to, like, the messages that we were, we were putting out publicly through the media and whatever else, but were rallying behind this. Like, our message was being heard and was being being repeated and being um was rever reverberating through the, the membership through our people i mean i suppose that's a major part of um, community organizing isn't it it's that you you, you i was going to say weaponize it's the wrong word you arm people with the messages and they they tell the story to their network and their network and their network and suddenly we had this going on and i had people coming back to me and telling me what hawks for change was all about i had friends who were getting phone calls from hawks for change volunteers who were calling me totally chuffed that they'd received these calls um you know from volunteers too removed it was becoming at one stage um knowing knowing me as they did but telling me how bloody impressed they were at the phone call they just got and i'm like that's that was extraordinarily gratifying when that was when we were foot to the floor on that and in the end, we didn't need to be foot all the way down to the floor for particularly long because the, the campaign took a, a slightly unexpected turn and, and suddenly we were in a position um, where, where the full rollout wasn't required and um, that, that, was a, that was reflective of the, of the strength that was clearly in our possession at that point. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was those conversations... Um, you know, because this could have easily, like, not happened. Like with a lot of things, a lot of well-meaning people, a lot of great ideas. We, you know, it, I was in Greece on holiday when, uh, in Crete on holiday towards the end of the, cri end of the cricket season when we really had to pierce or get off the pot. Now, a lot of conversations, a lot of, you know, we'd, we'd, had, we'd had a workshop with you and your team and we had a strategic plan, but, you know... Um, um, Kennett had put out a statement to the members and pretty much endorsed two, two board members, the, 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 the member who'd been there before and one other. And, you know, at that point, it looks a fairly daunting task. We're, we're effectively a WhatsApp group with a, with a strategic plan and not a lot more than that, not a single dollar in the bank at that point. Um, the easy thing to, to say then would have been, ah, uh, well, he's got the jump on us here. Um, you know, the probability of success is fairly low unless everything goes right. Let's just take a step back here and, and think about it maybe next year. But we went the other way. We went all the way in. And within a couple of weeks, the conversation had moved entirely um, to the point where it wasn't really about whether we would get somebody elected. It was, well, you know, if we go all the way through with this, we're a decent chance of getting two people elected. And, and, and maybe the, the real... Um, the real 
difference here will be whether um, Jeff Kennett's willing to leave the presidency early. And that's effectively what happened. So uh, I'm not saying that was beyond our wildest dreams, but I mean, there's a pretty big gap between where we were at the very, very start of this when I was on holiday in Greece compared to where we were two months later when we were able to build that model um, with these extraordinary volunteers and campaign activists who just wanted the same things that we were talking about. And it, it, put it this way, people didn't need an awful lot of convincing. Well, uh, we've been able to... Um, Ian Silk has... I say we've been able to, it's not us. Ian Silk has been elected to the Hawthorne Football Club board, which is tremendously exciting for the reasons I, I outlined before with him uh, as somebody of so much professional and personal credibility. Uh, he will do amazing things for the club, hopefully over a long period of time. Uh, I've known Ian for probably seven or eight years and... He's a, he's a man of um, you know, utmost class and and, uh, and, and dignity and, and, and the way that he speaks, it, it's hard not to... He, he thinks about what he says and, and what he says he really means and that's what you want in someone who's going to be involved in steering the future of the club as a director. Um, Andy Gowers ended up not running. Um, instead, he's becoming the chair of the nominations committee, um, which the club's never had before, and that's a body which will now provide an opportunity for people to put their hand up to run not only for the club board, but for subcommittees and other areas that the club, historically, it's been perhaps a little bit hard to navigate uh, how one might get involved with such a thing unless you've got the tap on the shoulder. Now people will have an avenue that they can get involved. And in the short term, the first business of the nominations committee uh, will be uh, providing a recommendation to replace Jeff Kennett as president. Um, Kennett uh, uh, wrote a, a, a note to members in the middle of all of this um, he, he went away for a long weekend and came back and put pen to paper um, saying that he wouldn't serve his full term, which was scheduled to finish at the end of 2023, uh, and instead that he would step down uh, by the middle of 2022. So effectively 18 months early, no later than um, the, the middle of uh, 2022 will be when there's a recommendation that comes from the nominations committee, which Andy Gowers is chair of. So, um, you know, one director on the board and then um, uh, Hawks for Change will have a, a real influence on uh, being able to shape, uh, well, not shape, but um, determine, along with uh, other members of the club board, who the next president will be. Uh, and to think uh, that's all been possible in the space of, I suppose, three or four months. Um, well, it, it's again, it's not just the... It's not just the, the fact that we've been working diligently on it behind the scenes, but what it's really about is the, is the people uh, who had nothing to do with this, never would have thought about this, but suddenly uh, put their shoulder to the wheel and made it inevitable that we would have this kind of result. In the words of uh, Kevin Shetty's uh, Speed Kills, I heard from uh, those that attended the AGM that uh, Kenneth's uh, departing words from the chair was that, um, see you next year, implying that he'll be chairing the 2002 uh, 2022 AGM. <laughs> uh, how confident are Hawks of Change that uh, Jeffrey Kennett will uh, keep his word and commitments that he's made to um, to supporters? Yeah, I think he will. I mean, it, it's easy to say. Um, look, Jeff Kennett's um, been around for a while. He's 74 in March. He's been through these things forever. He arrived at the um, with at the very much incorrect assumption that this was just a bunch of Labor activists that wanted to get back at him for, for having a go at Daniel Andrews on on Twitter um, and he misread that uh, he misread that terribly um, if he only knew the people who are involved in this who would never vote Labor in a million years this is not a Labor liberal thing this is a Hawthorne football club thing um, and and to have made that statement to walk it back uh, to attempt to walk it back now, I think would be quite difficult given the nominations committee uh, has been enshrined and that, um, that Andy's chairing it and that there seems to be a consensus across the board um, that this process will play out the way that it's been discussed before the AGM. And in turn, uh, before uh, the 30th of June 2022, there'll be another president, which would mean that, um, which would mean that therefore, Kennett wouldn't be chairing the next AGM in December 2022. So you've built this historic movement for change at one of the biggest and most successful AFL clubs in the country. Um, where to next? What does 2022 look like for Hawks for Change and those involved in this, in this, in this, um, in this grassroots movement? Yeah, this is the, I think this might be the most exciting part. I mean, it's all good and well to get people elected to things, right? And, uh, and to be involved in the, in the hustle and bustle of the, of the democratic process. But longer term, I think that what Hawks for Change will now be is a, a standing voice where, um, 
people do have at the grassroots level people do have the opportunity to be heard in a formal way which i mean sure there might be you know um, the opportunity to pick up the microphone at an agm if you really want to but how many people actually feel empowered enough to do that now with a group of people who are who've, who've demonstrated their willingness to, to listen and you know we've got a manifesto on the yeah, i say manifesto with kind of tongue-in-cheek a, a list of priorities on our website um, that's just the start and we're barely scratching the surface and that's a great thing this will be i think a vehicle where people can um, say they want to be part of the club formally be it on a subcommittee or on the board into the future uh, it'll be a, as required a pressure group i think it'll be a check and a balance on directors who are already there uh, and it'll be a, a direct line to um to those who are in power we've we've proven that uh that, that people in power uh, acknowledge that this was a good thing and they know that into the future this will mean the club works more cohesively between the boardroom and and the bleachers if you like um, this will be a conduit and a lot of people will hopefully uh, feel more empowered and more engaged with the club than ever before because i must say frankly i was drifting and i'm you know i suppose i'm the guy that people think of as that hawthorne guy you know you know if people were to sum me up that would be one of the first things they would say about me um you know and, I, and i'm sort of proud of that even though i live on the other side of the world I'm known for my Hawthorne you know, the parochial uh, allegiance. And even I, in recent years, it, it was sort of just like a bit dismayed about the direction of the club and it just kind of wore me down a bit. Now I couldn't be more fired up. And I reckon that'll be something that we see from a lot of Hawthorne people. They will feel fired up and ready to go about wanting to see the next generation of success on the field from not only the men's team, but now the women's team joining AFLW. Like, that is really cool. That was something that Hawthorne stuffed up initially um, by not going all in the way they should have years ago. But that, that's been... That's been, uh, that's been corrected now. So there's a great opportunity for a club to be more inclusive. You know, the Dingley project to build the club's home for the next 100 years when moving away from VFL Park uh, to implement uh, reform with respect to pokey machines. Now, I know that pokey machines is contested space, but um, per, our, um, per our, our policy, um, we would like to see the club move away from uh, a dependency on, on pokey machines and, and effectively decommission our machines and get rid of our licences. Uh, and that's going to take time. It won't happen overnight. Ian Silk's been um, quite measured on this topic, but that is... A quite a, a quite realistic objective when I don't think it was four months ago, you know, reconciling the Tasmania question. Where does Tasmania sit with Hawthorne? Well, we need to resolve that in a respectful way. It can't be, a, you know, sort of a take-take-take relationship. We need to work out where Tasmania fits with Hawthorne and the extent to which Hawthorne will support Tasmania in their desire to have their own licence, um, which I think a lot of people would say the time has absolutely come for that, for example. Now, where's Hawthorne going to fit into that? So, you know, having um, people on the board like Ian Silk, I feel a lot more confident and I think a lot of people who've been involved with or peripheral to Hawks for Change will feel a lot more confident that these types of questions will be resolved in a way uh, that, that is in keeping with the Hawthorne way. One thing I did notice that struck me, which I thought was a very, very positive thing and would uh, undermine what people would be assuming about those that would be involved in such a, um, a, a community-led move for change was the amount of uh, women that were involved in, in yeah. this at an organising level. So out of our gr core group of organisers, I think the majority of them were women. Yep. Um, and then on our the rallies, the online rallies that we held, remember this all happened during a, uh, a Victorian and New South Wales lockdown. So we actually, <laughs> strange thing, is still, still haven't physically met half these people. <laughs> um, but uh, looking at all the faces that were on on Zoom, on these Zoom rallies, um, you know, a large, uh, large uh, uh, group cohort of them were, were women. Um, and I'm just wondering, thinking about 2022 going forward, are we going to start to see um, more women being elevated into leadership positions within within the club and the running of the club as well? Let's hope so. I mean, my, my personal view, not speaking for Hawks for Change here, is that there should be there should be a, a considerable rebalancing of the board when it comes to the gender balance at the moment, which isn't great. Um, and we need to be responsible for that as Hawks for Change. We need to acknowledge the fact that Ian Silk is not a woman uh, and that Andy Gowers is not a woman. And our two candidates that we were endorsing were both men this time around. But I strongly believe uh, that next time around uh, that, that that won't be um, that won't be the same. Um, that won't be the same. Next time around, we, we'll, we will be, I think, in a stronger position to. Um, put up a, a more diverse range of candidates for, for election as and when, be that for the board or to go on to various subcommittees around the club. So 
um, because that would be reflective of, as you say, that the base of Hawks for change. I mean, you're right, those Zooms, those Zoom rallies. I mean, you think of footy, even now, it's got this perception of being a bloke's sort of, you know, bloke's thing. And maybe it was when I was a kid growing up, you know, maybe it was overwhelmingly that way, I don't know. But now, footy clubs aren't that way. Um, they, they have changed and the way they're governed and overseen off the field should reflect that. And Hawthorne has a responsibility uh, in that space. I mean, I think about my mum. You know, my mum was on those Zoom calls and, you know, like she, yeah, she's a little bit sort of, I suppose her, her disposition is not to be an activist. She's a little bit peripherally, probably because I've always been involved in politics and she's supportive of me. But, I mean, she's been a Hawthorne member for 40 years. Um, didn't grow up in Australia, but you know, came to following Hawthorne through my dad when they met. And now she is, like, totally on board with this. She feels as though Hawks for Change represents her views. And, like, that's that's really lovely. And then someone like... I haven't mentioned Lynn Sutton. I mean... 65-year member has given everything to the club that she possibly could in, I mean, more ways than we could count on our fingers and toes. Um, she's been at every meaningful moment of the club she was there fighting for its survival in 1996 and she's been instrumental uh, through that group the thornbirds i mentioned before uh, and, and, and the president of that organization i think she's the president at the moment um, someone like lynn who's been there every step of the way and supported jeff kenner and supported the club every step of the way who i don't think she mind me saying isn't politically aligned to the way in which a lot of us would see the world Stephen. but she's like there's something wrong here. I'm, you know, I'm someone who believes deeply in providing members an opportunity to have their say, in providing greater diversity at board level, uh, in, in seeing members better represented. I mean, is she the best community organiser I've ever met? Probably. And she, probably. She was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And this is someone who has probably earned the right to put the cue in the rack and leave it to the next generation. But there she was. Uh, that sort of all for one, one for all spirit of Hawthorne. Uh, you know, that, that is, that is, that, that's the gold dust on top of all of this. It's the people you meet along the way, isn't it? And, um, who, and people who now will become lifelong friends and, uh, and I'd imagine uh, who will remain um, as, as committed to um, affecting change through Hawks for Change in the future as they have been in the last few months. It's beautiful. I'm glad you mentioned Lynn as well. She deserves to get mentioned and lifted up on this podcast because she was an incredibly inspirational and motivational and focused individual um, to the work and the love that she has for the club, but also her commitment to the shared purpose and what she brought to the campaign. Mm. Um, mm. And, and the rest of them as well. I, I, you know, I, you don't want to single out one person in particular, but you know, I think Lynn certainly, given how many years she's followed uh, the Hawthorne Football Club, de deserves uh, to get her name held up. Well, she, 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 she's an emblem of, of a lot of the work, right? Like we talk about, there have been so many people who have given loads of time and I feel almost guilty rattling people off. People like Sarah Adams, Lyndon Alberston, like who, who were there every single night in the Zoom calls. I mean, I, you know, if I start naming people, I'm going to leave people out, but gave everything to it. But, I mean, Lynn and her daughter Olivia who didn't miss a Zoom call, you know, they were the ones organising the call sheets with you, you know, um, helped chair the online rallies. I mean, again, I stress this point, these are not political actors. These are Hawthorne, Hawthorne actors who, who want only the best for the club. Um, and this is where I think and truly believe this is only the start of something. This is, this is just a it's, it's a, it's a flag in the ground uh, and then we move forward from here. It, it hasn't been and never was about uh, the short-term objectives of, of changing the leadership of the club. That was but, um, but a feature of, of what could be, um, you know, and what should be uh, something that's far more long-lasting. If you're a Hawks fan listening to this podcast uh, and you haven't got involved in uh, Hawks for Change, can you do so and how can you do so? Yeah, I mean, hawksforchange.org, the social media um, handles that we've still got running out there. Uh, the Eloise was running for us and did a, a sterling job with that. Um, I mean... We're, we're, we're a little bit in taking stock mode, given that it's been the AGM was the 14th of December. I'm working, as we said, off the top for about 12 people at the moment. And, you know, we're just kind of taking a beat a little bit post AGM. But as we get into 2022, as the nominations committee uh, starts to do its work, as we start thinking about the footy season, the AFLW season and the AFL men's season that follows thereafter, um, it's going to be pretty exciting. So, yeah, I mean, if you are a Hawthorne member and you didn't get caught up in our... 
uh, in our wave of activity. A, I'd be kind of surprised if you're listening to this podcast and you're a Hawthorne person and didn't get wrapped up in what we're doing. But if you are, um, would love to hear from you. And you know, there are a lot of people, uh, be it in Melbourne and around the country and indeed around the world, uh, who are now um, aligned to this group. And yeah, a long way to go. It was a great journey. Colo, before we uh, wrap up, is there anything else you want to plug in, uh, in terms of uh, your cricket or your other uh, media things you've got going on? Um, well, um, I, I feel reluctant to drive people to it, to Twitter, because, I mean, I'm only going to damage their mental health by doing so. But that's probably where I do most of my stuff. Collins, Adam on Twitter, and, you know, you can find me in all the usual places. But um, through the English summer, I'll be working on radio and television over there. And then I come back here for the Australian summer. So if it's happening and it's involved in the world of cricket. But I probably should say um, the final word cricket podcast is where um, most of my activity is concentrated with myself and Jeff Lemon. And we do, uh, we, we make a couple of programs a week. We make a history show each weekend and we make sort of a, a political issues based show each week, which um, often includes long form interviews with some of the, the most well-known people in the game. So if you love your cricket, I suppose you'll, you'll probably, I, I like to believe you'll quite enjoy what we're doing. A, a lot of people do. Um, we'll put some links in our show notes as well for uh, all those things that Adam uh, just mentioned there. Adam, thank you so much for taking time out of your pretty hectic schedule to come on the show today. Um, and th- also thank you for giving Dunstreet the opportunity to be a part of a historic and really, truly exciting inspirational campaign uh, for the Hawks to change and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, again, just to reiterate to anyone that might be listening, uh, like Dunstreet, I mean, talked a lot about the the community engagement, the volunteers, the, the work that was done from people uh, each day and each night. But um, without having um, Dunn Street to sharpen us up, I, I don't think it could have been possible. So I um, can't speak highly enough of the experience. Bless you. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.